Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jayvon Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs, with any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Now people know when they see me coming that it's best to move aside. I ain't trying to harm nobody. I Today's guest is a New York Times best-selling author who, along with Guillermo del Toro, co-authored the haunting and heartbreaking love story, The Shape of Water, which was not only an international bestseller, but also a feature-length film that won the Oscar Award in four categories, including Best Director and Best Picture. In 2015, our tour guide for today's adventure also co-authored Troll Hunters with Del Toro, which was adopted into an Emmy-winning Netflix series. Also in 2015, today's guest launched an award-winning two-book series titled The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch, which was named one of Entertainment Weekly's top 10 books of the year. Earlier this year, he released Bent Heavens, built from the story of one man's alien abduction and eventual disappearance. Today, we're going to dig into the pages of his latest release, which is a posthumous collaboration with legendary filmmaker George A. Romero. The title of the book, The Living Dead. Please welcome our guest, the multi-talented Daniel Krauss. Daniel, thank you so much for setting aside the time for this. I'm looking forward to it. Sure thing, no problem. I have dug into the background of this story, and it's such an exciting thing the way this has kind of unfolded for us. The the concept of zombies, it traces its history back to the lore of the Haitian practice of reanimating corpses through the dark arts. Tales have inspired a number of fictional reliefs through the years, including Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, and, of course, George A. Romero's film portrayal, Night of the Living Dead. When you're working in the zombie genre, what are some of the historical influences that kind of provide a framework for you? Well, I mean, when you're working on something like this, which is a project George Romero started, the, the most important framework is just George Romero's work. You know, uh, all those, those historical elements you mentioned are certainly present, and George was well aware of them. He, uh, um, one of the key texts uh, that first introduced 
American or British audiences to uh, the idea of the Haitian zombie was a book by, I think, William Seabrook called The Magic Island. Mm-hmm. And one of the last things that Romero wrote before he died was an introduction to a new edition of that book. So he was very aware of the sort of history of the zombie. And he was he was on record as saying that uh, Matheson's book was a huge influence. Um, those things, though, the Haitian zombies especially did not affect his Man Living Dead quite as much as Matheson did. Um, essentially, you know, as, as is well known, Man Living Dead didn't use the word zombie because that's not really how Romero was thinking about them. Mm-hmm. He was thinking about them as he called them uh, in the movie Ghouls, mm-hmm. uh, which were, you know, undead people who eat human flesh, which was really different than the, the Haitian zombie concept, but was similar to what Matheson was doing. So mainly I would focus on Romero's version of things Although I did, I did try to, because this is such a, uh, an epic book, did try to look very widely and bring in elements that are as disparate as Haitian zombies and find ways to tie them into the story. Um, so th- the idea was really to go, to bring in everything that was possible, to sort of make this a kitchen sink book in a way that, that was sort of, you know, there will never be a sort of a last word on zombies, but mm-hmm. I wanted, and George wanted, I think, for this to be as close to that as possible. Yeah, I think the zombie culture overall and the zombie motif has really run the gamut of portrayals and projections. So many times when I look at it, it feels as if there's a bit of a culture struggle in play. And I think of Things even in our own history, such as the Spanish conquistadors versus the Aztec Empire or the Roman Crusades or even the the Cold War standoff that's even more recent history for us. It's it's this underlying sense that ultimately one culture will survive at the expense of the other. Was that thread weaving through Romero's work as he was looking at the zombie backdrop? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Romero was a uh, 60s radical. He was an activist and a protester himself. And the the idea of one society replacing another was foremost in his mind, and his sympathies were with the the rise, the uprising, the mm-hmm. rising society. So you just have to look just barely beneath the surface of his six zombie films to see that they are a story of the supposed underclass, um, which was the zombies, rising up to take over, you know, to sort of take to the streets and topple a ruling class that had become uh, unsustainable and cruel to each other and the planet, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's get a little bit of a backdrop, because I think most people are familiar with the 1968 movie Night of the Living Dead, Seven people are trapped in a rural farmhouse in western Pennsylvania, which is under assault by an expanding number of cannibalistic living corpses. Kind of walk us through how that evolved into what eventually became six films. Well, you know, 
it wasn't originally intended to be anything like a series, and it didn't play out like a typical series either. The the zombie films, you know, there's no characters that that turn up again. The only exception of that is there's a a character that's in the fifth film that does show up in the sixth film. Mm. But aside from that, they were separate stories that he generally would wait a, a decade to put a new entry in. So each film was sort of supposed to have something to say about the times that we were in. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it began in the sixties, in nineteen sixty eight, and he didn't make another one until Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. So a lot of time had passed and he just, you know, at that point it was, you know, to get really specific, it was, you know, Dario Argento, who was a big fan of Night of the Dead, coming to George Romero and saying, I really wanted, would like to make a sequel with you, produce a sequel. And this got George to thinking, if I were to do another zombie film, what would it be like? What would I have to say? You know? So in 1979, he releases Dawn of the Dead, doesn't make Day of the Dead until 1985. And then doesn't make Land of the Dead until 2005. So, you know, he really took his time. This was not something for him where I'm just going to make a bunch of money off these as much as uh, as rapidly as I can. Although he never did make a lot of money off them. It was really him using zombies, which he sort of backed into accidentally, as uh, what I think is one of the great metaphors of all time. I mean, it's, it's, there's a good reason zombies took over culture, you know, after Romero sort of reinvented them because they're so malleable. They're such a strong, flexible, uh, potential metaphor for a world that's either falling apart or rising up or both of them simultaneously. Let's get into the book, The Living Dead. It's released just recently in August, it opens with a series of small pocket outbreaks. There's a pair of medical examiners that find themselves battling a dead man who just won't stay dead. I love that theme. There's a Midwestern trailer park where there you have a black teenage girl and a Muslim immigrant who are battling newly risen friends and family. And uh, I I really like the, the backdrop there. Then we have a U.S. aircraft carrier. There's living sailors who are hiding from dead ones. And they're on this aircraft carrier, which is an enclosed environment. And then there's also, at a cable news station, a surviving anchor who keeps broadcasting while his undead colleagues are trying to devour him. There's just chaos in small pockets everywhere. Yes, that was sort of how uh, uh, Romero set up the book. It's almost as if you were making four films at once, as far as the setup goes. This time, you know, without the constraints of the film budget, he could really cross-cut between as many different storylines as he wanted to. Are we taking a smaller microcosm look at society in, in doing something along that line? I mean, I almost feel like that this is getting back to a little bit of the origin of thought that maybe couldn't be expressed as well in a film adaptation, so to speak. Well, it, it couldn't be expressed in a film adaptation, I think mostly because it would be, you know, a giant, uh, an expensive 
uh, proposition for a director who was not given a lot of money to play with. You know, mm. it never really mattered that Romero's films spawned so much of modern horror culture. They still, uh, they they being the people who hold the the, the pocketbooks, never really, you know, rewarded him with any budgets. He he, you know, to his to his last film, Survival of the Dead, he was working. In pocket change, you know, basically mm-hmm. working as he did in his first film, *I Live Dead*, and uh, the ones that followed that shortly after. The, the book was his chance to to work on a very broad canvas. I think. I don't think it. You know, the book allows allows you to do that and still be very intimate because you can get inside the heads of the people. So it doesn't really matter how sprawling the story gets. There's an intimacy with a novel that you can't always get with a film. Do you think that the budget constraints that he had to work under was somehow seen as this film, this genre, is going to, I guess, appeal to a certain segment of society, but a lot of society is going to pass it over as just another gory horror film that really doesn't grab my attention and fail to see the underlying story that's being told? I mean, I don't know if that's exactly it because around the time of the Dawn of the Dead remake, which was a big hit, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the boom that sort of started with that, and Twenty Eight Days Later, and, uh, and then of course The Walking Dead, uh, lavish budgets were being uh, spent on zombie tales. So it was just really Romero films. Mm. You know, his his point of view was never going to fit neatly inside Hollywood. You know, his unhappiest years, I think, were when he was in Hollywood writing a million scripts and getting nothing made. You know, that was sort of the era in which you saw his film, The Dark Half, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, really surrounded by a lot of dead time where he wasn't directing any films. He was, you know, he was, as I said, he was a, a radical, he was an independent thinker, very independent-minded. And... I think he had an urge in him to create these big productions. Certainly, you know, Land of the Dead was the, the, the one time he was given some amount of money. And the, his original conception, conception of Day of the Dead was much more uh, grandiose. But, you know, he's, his films were not about uh, shocks. You know, his, his films are generally... the. The scary parts, with the exception, I, w- uh, I would say, of Night of the Living Dead, they're not really out to terrify you that much. They're out to to tell a dramatic story about the human flaws. So the zombies for him were really a, a catalyst. He, As I said, he sort of backed into the concept of zombies accidentally. It could have been anything. What he was interested in were... Uh, sort of American society breaking down in times of stress. And he was given the zombie metaphor, and so he ran with it and just continued to use it over time. As you began to become more and more acquainted with the text that he had put together, what parts of it began to speak to you that they kind of inspired the addition to the text, the overlayment of the text that you began to add, what part of it caught your attention and you're like, yeah, this is the story that needs to come to the surface to be told? So the manuscript that I was presented uh, from Romero's wife and manager wasn't 
necessarily all chronological. There was a, a good chunk of the introduction of the characters that existed, but then sort of later we found other other pieces of of the project, and some of it clearly belonged in the middle of the story, and some of it belonged at the end. And then at some point we discovered notes. So there were notes of where some of the plot strands were going that he hadn't wrapped up. And so there was a lot there. Um, what what spoke to me most was just the the sort of sweeping vision of it all. Uh, he wanted this to be cradle to grave, so to speak, the zombie epidemic from the very beginning to the very end. Mm. And it was exciting for me. You know, I've always been a, a student of Romero more than I was a student of zombies. You know, my interest was always really more specifically George Romero, all of his work. I mean, I like, I like zombies as much as the next guy, but my interest was more specifically George. Were there any specific characters that as you were beginning to read the bits and the pieces, were there any specific characters that really stood out to you as maybe having a, a stronger influence on the story or, or maybe being a key character that the story was being built upon or around? Well, what struck me about his characters when I read the partial manuscript was that none of them were purely good. Uh, every single one of them, right from the start, he has them displaying good qualities and bad qualities. And I think, you know, I've been a George Romero fan since I was five or six years old. I mean, he, he has really guided, uh, his work has really guided my whole life, uh, and certainly my artistic life. And I think what I've always responded to is exactly that, that, that his, he has good characters who do the wrong things. He has bad characters who do the right things. It's the most classic example of Mad Living Dead, where the evil character of Harry is right. He's, he's the guy who's making the right call the whole time. You know, the big debate is whether we hide out in the basement or not in the, in the original film. And our hero Ben says, no, we've got to stay, we've got to stay upstairs. And the evil Harry says, no, we've got to go to the basement. And it turns out Harry was right. Yeah. And I love that. And when I, and when I read, uh, uh, George's pages for, from this book, he, he was just all over that. Like he would introduce someone and you would be like, oh, this is, this is a, one of our heroes. This is great. And then 10 pages later, they'd be doing something terrible. He'd swing back and forth, and I just loved that, and I got really inspired by that. And it was refreshing to see that uh, in a book, period, but uh, also just, you know, inspiring to see that George was not giving up that idea that all people are struggling with doing the right thing and that we all have a dark side. Um, you know, he was, he was sort of a pessimist. So where he's leading with this is that we're not going to make it. You know, he thinks that at the end of the day, we can't work together. We can't get along. Um, and whether or not you agree with that, it's, you can still read this book and watch his films and I think learn something and take something from it. Characters and character development. We're talking with Daniel Krause. He's collaborated, put the finishing touches on the book, The Living Dead. It's a collaboration with George a Romero. We're going to dig into characters in our next segment. You don't want to go anywhere, folks. We will be right back. This is Kathy Reichs, the author of A Conspiracy of Bones, 
the 19th in the Temperance Brennan Bones series, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. I see the summer sun in my mind when I'm in my darkest place. See the pine trees bending in the wind that I'm feeling on my face. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash P-D-I and become a valued part of the show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-D-I. Your support moves that needle. We're at the midway point of this week's adventure, and there's more great conversation just ahead. But I wanted to take just a moment to thank those of you who are podcast subscribers and those of you who help support the show through our Patreon page. We love bringing these conversations your way, but there's a physical cost involved in producing each weekly adventure. And without support from our podcast family, bringing you the show each week just wouldn't be possible. One of the best ways you can show support for the show is by using the links to Amazon found throughout the Public Display of Imagination website. Whenever you use one of our links to go to the Amazon site, we get a small percentage of override on your purchase, whatever it might be. So if you clicked on a book title but ended up purchasing a purple Grapthar's Hammer t-shirt or a Nerf crossbow to arm your six-year-old against the next zombie outbreak, well, your purchase just helped the show because you used one of our links to get to the Amazon site. So if you're going to Amazon, please let us be your doorway. The Sendable Social Media Management Tool is another great way you can support the show. If you're an author, a publicist, a publisher, or anyone who uses social media to help promote your business, I promise you, you won't find a more useful application anywhere. Like Amazon, we've got links to Sendable on almost every page of the website, Click on it and take a free 14-day test drive. We've been using Sendable for over a year now, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. One last thing. Don't forget to check out the host page for this week's adventure. I realize that you're probably listening to the podcast via iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Deezer, or one of a host of other podcast listening platforms. And we do hope that you'll give us a rating and a review while you're listening. But the adventure host pages on the public display of Imagination website are where you'll find direct links to the authors, their books, and their social media pages. You'll also see a link to the Inside the Writer's Workshop segment with today's guest that we just uploaded to our public display of Imagination YouTube channel. It's always one of my favorite segments, and we're excited to bring these extended author interview segments your way via YouTube. So I hope you'll check out the Public Display of Imagination channel on YouTube and explore all of our fantastic Inside the Writer's Workshop conversations. Now, let's get back to this week's PDI podcast adventure. This is Luke Jennings, the author of the Killing Eve novels, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs.
All right, we're back. My guest, Daniel Krauss. We're talking about the book, The Living Dead, which released in August. It's a collaboration between Daniel and George A. Romero. George put together a lot of parts, but had passed away. Daniel was asked to pull things together and finish the work. Daniel, I know that for every author, uh, they have to have a a portfolio, so to speak, online, a place where they can be found, a place where the public can look at their work and, and get a little bit more of a personal examination of it from the author's perspective. If somebody wanted to follow you online, where's the best place for them to see and look into the work of Daniel Krauss? Well, really the best place is my website, danielkraus.com. That's K-R-A-U-S. Uh, I, I right now I, I am on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, but th- that's not always the case. I do occasionally take long breaks, as long as a year, from those uh, sites. So the best place is to go to the website, and that'll that'll give you some options where to go. And we'll have links to all of those folks on the host page for this adventure. So you'll be able to click get right to Daniel's website, or if you wanted to follow him on Twitter, if that's where you spend most of your time on social media. If that's where you want to be, we'll have the link to the Twitter page, Facebook, uh, Instagram, wherever you might want to follow. We want you to be able to follow our authors and, and keep tabs on what they're working on. Daniel, in, in March, in early March, COVID-19 became the story. The NBA had a positive test. They shut down immediately. A couple of days later, baseball spring training shut down. The NCAA basketball tournaments were canceled, carte blanche. Cities and states began to restrict movement and call for isolation. Store shelves quickly emptied as some folks focused on personal survival. Organizations emerged as some folks focused on relief in a time of need. Some were focused on who to blame. Others were focused on interpreting conflicting data. We saw death around every corner in the eyes of some. Through others, they were cavalier. There's nothing to worry about. Good decisions were made. Bad decisions were made. Just the polar opposites of the spectrum could be found throughout our society. In a novel setting that has so many moving parts, the story is impacted by a variety of circumstances and conditions. How important is it to portray the diversity of actual real-life day-to-day society and just let that bleed through regardless of how raw it might be? Well, you're talking about a few things there. I mean, I think it's it, it, it it's important. And, of course, it varies on what kind of story you're telling, uh, but it was important to this book, I think. You know, I think it was Stephen King recently who said on uh, NPR that we're living in a George Romero movie right now, and we are. There's There's many... You know, you're talking about giant pandemic type texts. There are a couple, you know, sort of American classics. And one would be probably Stephen King's The Stand. And then the other one would be Night of Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and the sort of George Miro films that are based on this idea of a, a plague that takes over. And really, the idea of the zombie is that any of us any of us could be carriers and any of us could pass it along to anyone else and your friends and family are not to be trusted. So it is in some terrible ways, a book that looks at kind of in a fantastical way, what doesn't seem so fantastical day to day now, 
you know, we're essentially boarding ourselves up in our houses for COVID the same way that people in George's movies boarded themselves up to keep away from the zombies. Uh, the difference is COVID is airborne and zombies are bloodborne. And that, you know, aside from that, it, there's really some remarkable similarities. Yeah. As far as the diversity of characters go, you know, George was always a leader in um, sort of a diverse cast. He famously uh, cast a black man as the lead in I Living Dead, which was controversial at the time. And it, to this day, adds so much poignancy to that film. Uh, you know, there, the, one of the great things about Night Living Dead and one of the miraculous things about it is you can watch it as a horror film. You can watch it and sort of laugh along to some of its campiness from, you know, some of the old old fashioned details in it. But the theater goes quiet anytime that, that final scene happens where I'm not I'm gonna go ahead and spoil it because the movie's from nineteen sixty eight. But our, our uh hero Ben, uh a black man, is essentially survives the zombies only to get shot in the head by an overzealous militia. Mm. So that makes that movie extremely charged. Uh, it's, it's a shocking ending, and he Romero was very aware of it uh, and sort of drew out that scene in more detail and sort of Dawn, uh, Dawn of the Dead and then in some of his other films. Uh, he consistently cast... People of all all skin colors in his uh, films. He was he was really interested in America, and I think it's one of the interesting things about the novel is that although it's very big in scope and sort of hints at what's going on in the globe, it really is an American novel. It's about America. Uh, it doesn't have any major sections that take place anywhere else, all, except for the sort of final section, which takes place in. Uh, Toronto for a very particular reason. So he really was interested in America and it's, it's sort of past and present and its future or lack thereof. You know, that's where the, that's where the book digs its heels. Into. It's, it's a book about the rise and fall of the United States, really. Mm. As character development takes different twists and turns for every author, it, it, it's, it's important that each character kind of has those distinctive traits and, and trademarks that rise to the surface and, and you know, can, can be seen. In our previous segment, we found out that the living dead brings to light a number of, of different characters who find themselves threatened by the trappings of their own environment. As you look at a broad array of a cast that has so many different moving parts, and I can't think of another way to really say that, but you've got... You have to work with a, a sailor and, and work to keep the sailors distinctly different from the mortuary attendants or to keep the news anchor's story and his reaction and his feelings and his emotions unique from that of the teenagers in the trailer park. Otherwise, we're just overlaying the same story over and over and over into the same setting. Talk to me a little bit about giving the characters in a written text room to express their individualism and their emotion? Well, this book is sort of set up in a way that allows that to happen. There's, I don't know, I don't know if every section gets a hundred pages, but 
you know, we have a big chunk of pages at the very beginning of the book devoted to the mortuary workers, mm-hmm. um, the medical examiners. And then we have another big section at the trailer park and another big section in the TV studio and then a fourth section on the aircraft carrier. And so those sections are all lengthy. So you really get to, they're almost like their own novellas. So you, you really get to learn about these people and their environment and how different a trailer park is from an aircraft carrier. They couldn't be more different. And then you start to mix it up. Then in the section that follows, you start to intercut between them. So you really have given the readership a chance to get to know everyone before you start blending their stories together. Otherwise, uh, it, it is possible to kind of lose track. And who is this? And who is that? And, uh, there, there are all sorts of ways to do it. That's sort of the pattern that George set up in this book. And I, I like it. I, I, I sort of agreed with it. I thought it was a, a, you know, if it were movies, it would be sort of four different movies. And then the fifth movie is when everyone comes together. When the, the camera draws back and you see the grand scheme of everything that's happening, as opposed to just the pockets that you've been focused on. Yeah. And then there's the whole middle section of the book that really draws back, where it's the one time where you sort of step away from the characters. You know, it, it's interesting that the first section of the book, uh, which is hundreds of pages, takes mm-hmm. place over two weeks. And the final section of the book takes place one day. Uh, the middle section of the book, book takes place over 15 years, and it's by far the smallest section. Uh, and that's the part where you sort of... The, the idea, and this was sort of my idea, was that you have Romero's movies. You, if you watch the movie, you, you sort of have that middle section already. So I don't want to tread too heavily over ground that was already covered. So the middle section kind of whizzes past the movie's content and then goes a little bit further to show you all the things that have changed in the world beyond what Romero's movies uh, showed you. Like what really happens when the human population is down to almost zero? Like what happens to the world? You know, what happens to nature? The, the world starts coming back, you know, uh, America, now that pollution and factories and people are gone and not ruining anymore, becomes this beautiful verdant garden of Eden again. So there's all these sort of interesting, interesting things that happen to the planet. Once you remove humans, and they're not all bad. We have Daniel, a lot of aspiring writers that listen to our podcast week after week. They're, they're working through the elements of their first manuscript. Some of them have written several books, and they're still honing their craft. I'm always interested if there's a danger when dealing with something that may be somewhat familiar to us. Is there a danger of stereotyping characters, such as the ones we've just mentioned? We, we've got people in different areas, the sailors, the folks in the trailer park, the folks in the mortuary, but is there the danger of maybe running with the stereotype of that person in that situation and letting that stereotype drive the narrative of the story as opposed to realizing that any person could be in that situation and they're individuals? And we may be talking about a trailer park, but we're also talking about individuals. We may be talking about a newsroom, 
but there's all kinds of personalities in that newsroom. They don't all fit under one umbrella of description. As you're writing, is that something that you have to be ever cognizant of, that you're making sure your character is an individual and is not just defined by the setting you dropped them into? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's just that's just good writing. I mean, you want to to never go for the first thing you think of, and that goes for characters. That goes for individual sentences. You know, you. I think the best writing is that you're surprising people on a word by word, sentence by sentence level. Uh, if you if you write a sentence and you say, "Well, that sentence has been written a hundred times before, or a thousand million times before," don't write it. Uh, find a different way to say it. Uh, if if it feels like this person has had a thought that a million other characters have had, well, change it. Uh, find a new angle. And that's not, you know, that's not to say that people don't have similar thoughts sometimes. But you have to acknowledge that and move through it. You know, sometimes you'll have a character who have, you know, who have some some uh, thought or desire that could be seen as stereotypical. But, you know, we all do. We all fall into certain patterns that where we want or think something that you might think I might want or think, but that doesn't mean you can't drill through it and find something unique in that. Uh, you just have to always dig deeper. And one of the things that, as I mentioned, I liked about George's manuscript was that it, it took every single character and went in different directions with it. He, he was good. He was bad. He did great things. He did terrible things. Um, and for me, that's the key to interesting characters. And I don't want to ever feel safe with any of them. I want to meet a character and not be a positive that they're going to do the right thing, even if they're supposedly the uh, protagonist. Daniel, readers are often willing to suspend belief going in because they've kind of acknowledged that what they're reading is fiction. When writing a series built around the sciences or technology, the question of possibility versus plausibility is always in play. Is the question of possible versus plausible applicable to horror fiction, or is it more, if you can dream it, you can scheme it, and anything goes? I mean, it really depends on uh, the book. I mean, I'm I'm a proponent for anything goes. I mean, there's, there's certain kinds of genres or subgenres that are very technically minded and you want to believe in it. You know, the living dead is a real combination of those kind of things. Uh, although, you know, the COVID virus has been a lot closer to uh, Romero zombie virus than, than is comfortable. It's still pretty outlandish, but mm. to make that, to make that feel palpable and visceral, you know, the amount of research that I would do to set, to set the, uh, that fantastical element within realistic settings is always very heavy. Uh, I think, you know, probably the best section to use for that as an example would be the, the section aboard the aircraft carrier, which, uh, I didn't know anything. This was a part where I sort of loved George and hated him at the same time, uh, because he had, set up the section of an aircraft carrier. I know anything about aircraft carriers. And let me tell you, there's a lot to know about aircraft carriers. <laughs> they're floating cities. I had to learn, you know, all about, uh, they're incredible, uh, vessels that contain an entire metropolis of people, but you know, Navy, Navy hierarchy and, uh, titles and 
stripes and uh, there's a million things. So I just read a mountain of books, documentaries. Uh, I got a private tour of an aircraft carrier, just trying to wrap my head around this so that I could present what felt like a very believable, even if the reader can't even always follow exactly what I'm talking about. You know, I may fill it up with technical details that I know are true that are sort of above the head of the average reader, but that's also, you know, a way to assure them that I've done the work that the, you know, you can sort of trust me that this is a realistic setting and that within this realistic setting, some wild things are going to happen, but it's going to hit harder if you believe in it as a real place with real people. Daniel Krauss, ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Krauss, today we talked mostly about The Living Dead, but Daniel also co-authored The Shape of the Water with Guillermo del Toro and released a standalone novel called Bent Heavens in February. Links to his books as well as his social media pages are posted on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Daniel, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed hearing how Daniel extended the legacy of George A. Romero by putting the finishing touches on the living dead. But the fun's only beginning, folks. In our Inside the Writer's Workshop segment, we'll find out how the shape of water came to be. We'll also get Daniel's perspective on alien abduction, the popular Netflix series Troll Hunters, and we'll find out about a series of middle grade books that Daniel is writing involving a group of teddy bears that go looking for cuddle partners. You'll find it all on the Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel. We call it our Inside the Writer's Workshop segment, and we do one with each author guest that you hear here on the podcast. You can listen to that portion of the conversation right from the host page for each adventure on the Public Display of Imagination website, and we hope you're intrigued enough at this point to join us there as we go behind the curtains with Daniel Krause. You'll also see book summaries on the host page for this adventure and find hot links to Amazon for many of the books that we talked about over the course of our conversation. Thank you for subscribing and listening through whatever podcast listening platform you use to follow the show. Please don't forget to give us a rating and a review. And until next time, remember the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J-Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify.